Well, good morning and uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is uh, Marianne Tupi. I'm a senior policy analyst here at Cato and I also edit uh, the website called humanprogress.org. Human Progress is a website that provides a realistic picture of the state of humanity, uh, a state that is in many important ways much better than uh, people can gauge from apocalyptic newspaper headlines. But of course, in our efforts, we stand on the shoulders of giants, and none more so than Julian Simon, to whose life and work today's forum is dedicated. Julian was in many ways a scholar, a humanist, was many things. Um, uh, he, was, uh, he was a scholar, he was a humanist, he was an optimist, but above all, he was immensely courageous. There's no courage in following the crowd screaming, the end is nigh, we are all going to die, swimming against the current of public opinion, which was immensely hostile to his views in the 1960s and the 1970s. Julian must have felt very lonely indeed. But that did not prevent him from leaving a great scholarly legacy on which the work of the Simon Project, uh, which I will be presenting shortly, intends to build. Uh, but to uh, start our proceedings today, I would like to welcome Julian's son, uh, David, uh, to recall the life and times of his late father. David. My sister Judy, who is with us today, and my brother Daniel, who could not join us today, and I are very happy that Marianne, Gail, and Cato, uh, the Cato Institute, have developed the Simon Abundance Index. The Simon Abundance Index continues a long connection between my father and the Cato Institute. My father was a Cato adjunct scholar. Cato published some of his monographs. Cato hosted a memorial event after he died, and in 2000, Cato published uh, It's Getting Better All the Time, 100 Greatest Trends of the Last 100 Years, a book that former Cato Fiscal Studies Director Stephen Moore, who started his economics career as my father's research assistant uh, and then became a frequent collaborator with him, um, wrote with my father and finished after my father's death. Marion asked me to say a few words about my father's optimism. It is important to understand that his optimism about long-term economic trends for population growth, natural resources, and the state of humanity did not result from inherent optimism. It instead resulted from compiling and analyzing the longest, broadest, and deepest data sets concerning human well-being. Using this data, his work showed that uh, population growth around the world has led to people living longer, healthier, and more prosperous lives, that the natural resources that people use have become more available, less expensive, and that, people, and that as people prosper, environmental quality improves. It is this data that made him optimistic about the state and future of humanity. As he put it, this is my long-run forecast in brief. The material conditions of life will continue to get better for most people in most countries, most of the time, indefinitely. Within a century or two, all nations and most of humanity will be at or above today's Western living standards. In fact, I think it'll happen even faster. I also speculate, however, that many people will continue to think and say that conditions of life are getting worse. 
the data that the Simon Abundance Index has compiled and builds on this work. Three big points were key to his outlook. First, one of his great insights was that the continual process for human beings uh, is that we face challenges, such as the high price of what appears to be a scarce resource. We struggle. And then, often guided by price incentives, we find a, a better solution. We find a solution that makes the resource uh, or a better substitute more available at lower prices. The fracking revolution that has led to vast new production of oil and gas is a classic example of this process. Even with OPEC exerting efforts to keep prices high, many now often worry, not this moment, but a few months ago, about oil prices being too low rather than too high. In other words, human beings face problems, uh, we solve them, and then we're better off than we were before the problems arose. It's important to note that he did not say that the world does not have problems. The world has many, many serious problems. Population growth indeed causes problems, but it is population growth that provides the tools to develop solutions that leave us better off. As he put it, I do not say that everything now is fine, of course. Children are still hungry and sick. Some people live out lives of physical and intellectual poverty and lack of opportunity. War or some new pollution may do us all in. What I am saying is that for most of the relevant economic matters that I've checked, the trends are positive rather than negative. Adding more people causes problems, but people are also the means to solve these problems, he wrote. Second, population growth is not a problem. It is, a, it is lack of political and economic freedom that causes human suffering. As he put it, even talented and energetic people require an incentive to create better techniques and organizations and protection for their property that is the fruit of their labors. Therefore, the political economic structure is the crucial determinant of the speed with which economic development occurs. In the presence of economic liberty and respect for property, population growth causes fewer problems in the short run and greater benefits in the short run than where the state controls economic activity. Third, Population growth not only solves problems, it is population growth that is the big driver that leads to human progress. As he put it, uh, the main fuel to speed our progress is our stock of knowledge, and the break is our lack of imagination. The ultimate resource is people, skilled, spirited, and hopeful people who exert their wills and imaginations for their own benefit. And inevitably, they will benefit not only themselves, but the rest of us as well. He did, however, oh, by the way, he found that immigration is the most beneficial kind of, of, of population growth. He did, however, identify one resource that is becoming more scarce, people. There was only one resource which has shown a trend of increasing scarcity, he wrote, rather than increasing abundance. That resource is the most important of all, human beings. There are more people on Earth now than ever before, but if we measure the scarcity of people the same way we measure the scarcity of other economic goods by how much uh, uh, we must pay to obtain their services, we see that wages and salaries have been going up all over the world, in poor countries as well as in rich countries. The amount you must pay to obtain the services of a driver or a cook has risen in India, just as the price of a driver or a cook or an economist has risen in the United States over the decades. This increase in the price of people's services is a clear indication that people are becoming more scarce, 
even though there are more of us. The Wall Street Journal on February 11 of this year highlighted this point uh, in an article about China, the most populous country in the world, but which for decades limited its people to having only one child. China has a labor shortage, believe it or not. It now has too few people. They wrote, somewhere Julian Simon is smiling. In the 1970s and 1980s, the World Bank, the Club of Rome, author Paul Ehrlich, and the United Nations predicted a catastrophe if China's government couldn't stop its people from having babies. Simon argued from his post at the University of Illinois that this was wrong. He said the, problems, he said the problem wasn't too many Chinese, but the political and economic system oppressing them. Simon even predicted in 1985 that if China opened its economy to market forces, the growth might leave China facing a labor shortage. Well, here we are. The Chinese Academy of Social Sciences recently confirmed that Simon, who died in 1998, was right. In its Green Book of Population and Labor, the Academy now says China's population will start to decline in 2030, and the decline is, quote, unstoppable, unquote, and it is, quote, bound to cause very unfavorable uh, social and economic consequences, unquote, especially in a society that is rapidly aging. On that note, I'll say thank you, Marion, thank you, Gail, thank you, Cato, and thank you, all of you. Thank you very much, David. Our next speaker is Gail Pooley. Uh, he is the Associate Professor of Economics at BYU. He has taught at Al Faisal University in Riyadh, um, also at uh, BYU Idaho, Boise State University, and the College of Idaho. He serves on the board of humanprogress.org. It was a true pleasure to work with him on a paper which we published late last year. And what I asked uh, Gail to do this morning is to, to explain the main components uh, of our research and to appraise the audience uh, with the latest uh, numbers uh, pertaining to the Simon Abundance Index. With that, help me welcome Gail Pooley. Well, thank you all very much for being with us today. Uh, thank you, Cato, for sponsoring this event. And I also want to thank the internet, especially Twitter. Uh, without Twitter, I would have never discovered Marion. So uh, God bless the internet. I'm especially grateful also for the opportunity to, make, to meet David Simon. David, your father, was a great inspiration to all of us. Professor Simon had the facts and this beautiful theory. Uh, but he had something much more important. He had the courage to <clears throat> stand up to anyone, um, anywhere, to defend his facts and his arguments. He was a true David surrounded by Goliaths. So thank you, David, uh, for being with us this morning. None of us would be here without the courage of your father to speak the truth. <clears throat> In the last Avengers movie, Thanos says, the universe is finite. Its resources are its resources finite. If life is left unchecked, life will cease to exist. It needs correcting. Any idea where Thanos got his inspiration? Oh, really? It looks like it. <laughs> Society needs rescaling. We've got to reduce the size of the entire human enterprise. 
Well, the guardians of the galaxy show up. These two men <clears throat> agreed on one thing, <clears throat> that there is a relationship between population and prices. Ehrlich argued that as population increased, prices would increase, resulting in scarcity. Julian argued the opposite, that as population increases, prices would actually decrease. So who was right? Well, fortunately, they bet. Behold, one of the most important checks ever written in economics. Of the five metals Ehrlich chose, copper, chromium, nickel, tin, and tungsten, the real price had fallen over 10 years by over 57%. So our project begins by asking this question, would Julian still win that bet today? So first of all, we thought he was too generous in his bet. We thought his odds were too good. Uh, if you remember, he had an unlimited downside and only a limited upside. We also um, think that using real prices maybe underestimated what was truly happening. We think that he should have used time prices instead. What, what prices? Time prices. Time prices. Time. Time prices, convert prices to time. That's where the real measurement is. And we also, uh, well, we'll give George a, a reference here about how important time prices, is, how important time is when we measure abundance. So our paper uh, does five things. First of all, we offer a new definition of abundance. Secondly, we take the five commodities that were in this bet, we expand it to 50 commodities. We also convert these prices uh, to time prices. We think that's a much, much better way to measure uh, scarcity. We develop a new equation that we call the price elasticity of population. And we also then uh, offer a new index to measure this abundance. We quantify this uh, definition and we measure it. So abundance. We define abundance as, as uh, the relationship between prices and population, the same uh, as Julian would, the same as Ehrlich would have. Uh, so we begin with these 50 commodities. We call them the foundation commodities. So we have energy, food, materials, metal, and precious metals. We go to the World Bank and the IMF to uh, get this data. Uh, we, we go back to 1980. They fortunately uh, keep a great record. Uh, so we begin with their data. And then we also, uh, the next step is we recognize that innovation shows up lots of different places. It shows up in lower prices, but it also shows up in higher incomes. And to really see the full picture, we've got to look at both the change in income and the change in prices. It really allows us to see the whole picture. Adam Smith uh, recognized this when he said, the real price of everything is the toil and trouble of acquiring it. What is bought with money is purchased by labor. George will uh, confirm that. Um, unlike central bank currencies, time is not subject to inflation. So, a little review here. Money uh, prices are expressed in dollars and cents. Time prices are expressed in hours and minutes. When we look at money prices, there are kind of two prices that we think about, the nominal price and the um, real price, the real price is simply the nominal price divided by a, uh, 
deflator. Time prices, we just take a price of an item and divide it by hourly income. That allows us to uh, determine how much time it takes uh, to work to uh, acquire that item. Note that time prices can decline two ways. The price can fall or income or and income can increase. If either one of these two things happen, you'll see time prices decline. So we look at prices from the World Bank and for the denominator for hourly income, we went back to the World Bank and looked at their per capita uh, GDP. With that, we then went to the conference board who publishes annual hours worked and used that uh, to, to calculate what uh, the GDP per hour would be. With those uh, variables, we then were able to uh, analyze these 50 commodities. So let's just take a moment and look at oranges, for example, one of the items in our database. Um, so 1980, World Bank reports that a kilo of oranges was about 40 cents. In 2017, they'd increased, they'd uh, more than doubled to 81 cents. Uh, during that same period, per capita GDP was a little more than 2,500 per person. It had increased to over 10,000 per person by 2017. The hours worked, uh, note the decline there, about a 9% decline from 2168 down to 1964. If we take the GDP per capita and divide by the hours worked, that will get us a GDP per capita per hour. So $1.16 in 1980. 534 in 2017. So with that, we can calculate the time price of oranges. Um, 40 cents divided by $1.16 would suggest about 0 0.345 hours or about 21 minutes to uh, buy a kilo of oranges. By 2017, the price had dropped to nine minutes. So we had a 56% decrease in the cost of oranges. So we take, uh, we take these nominal prices from the World Bank, we divide by the per, uh, GDP per capita per hour to get the time price, and then we index those to 1980, and then we plot that trend. And we do this with all of the commodities. We also kind of look at uh, a little regression. You'll note that uh, you'll see spikes in that trend line. And Professor Simon said this is, this is uh, what you expect to have happen. You'll have periods where, you're, where you will have spikes. When those occur, you'll have four things that will happen. People will use less. They will um, try to find more, uh, discover more, make more. They will uh, also recycle. It's kind of hard to recycle an orange, but you can recycle steel and aluminum and lots of other things. And they will also search for substitutes. Those four things will cause the price to actually end up being lower. And we see that in this uh, this uh, trend line as well. A couple of other things that we can do with uh, percentage change that give us a little more insight is we can also develop a multiplier. We can compute the compounded annual growth rate, and we can also calculate the years to double. The multiplier simply says how many units uh, of an item the same amount of time would purchase at different points of time. The equation is one divided by one plus the percentage change. Note that this relationship is not linear, it's geometric. Once we have the multiplier, we can calculate the, the uh, compounded annual growth rate. The multiplier raised to one over the number of years minus one will give you that uh, compounded annual growth rate. Once you have that, you can use the rule of 70s 
to uh, calculate how many years it takes to double something in size. You can also use logarithms to do that. You can also use a financial calculator or Excel to uh, calculate both the growth rate and the multiplier. So with that, let's go back and take a look at oranges. They drop by 56%. That would indicate a multiplier of 2.27. So the time it took me in 1980 to, to earn the money to buy an orange, that same amount of time would get me 2.27 oranges in 2017. At that rate, uh, oranges are compounding at 2.24%, which means every 31 years, you get twice as many oranges. So we take all of our commodities, do our analysis on them, get them all indexed to 100 in 1980, put them together, and that's what our trend line looks like. Every one of our commodities actually fell in price of the 50. Zinc, 17.5%, sugar, over 83%. The average was around 64.7%. So we take the whole index, apply it, Time price, 64.7, would say your multiplier is 2.83. I buy this basket in 1980. For the same amount of time, I get 2.83 times as much in 2017. That's growing at 2.85% a year. Every 25 years, abundance doubles. So the next thing we did is we developed a new equation that we call the price elasticity of population. Uh, if you're familiar with um, these equations from Micro 101, price elasticity of demand and cross-price elasticity. Um, there won't be an exam on this. So um, our equation is price elasticity or price change, uh, the percentage change in time prices divided by the percentage change in population. Also note that we all always assume that uh, population is increasing, so our denominator is always positive. So when we look back at uh, the data, we index both population and our commodities to 100 in 1980. Population grew from um, about 4.5 billion to over 7.5 billion. We added 3 billion people to the planet, uh, almost a 70% increase in population. During the same 37-year period, prices fell, time prices fell by almost 65%. So when we plug those values into our equation, 64.7, 69.3, we get a coefficient of zero minus 0 0.934. The way we interpret this is for every 1% increase in population, abundance increased, time prices fell by 1%. We also uh, discovered there are four abundant zones that we can uh, look to from this equation. Decreasing abundance emerging abundance, accelerating abundance, and superabundance. So what I want to uh, ask you, I want to ask you to do a little math problem here with me. <clears throat> so in 1980, you invite 100 guests over for dinner. It's going to cost you $10 uh, per guest to buy the, the food and beverage. What would the cost be? $1,000. So in 2017, uh, you have 69% more guests, but your costs have fallen by 65%. What's your bill going to be? Well, I think it's 169 times 350. So your bill's going to be 591.50. Is that right? 
Can we see it? Ignore inflation because we've already, we've, these are time prices. So just, just look, at, look, look at this for a second. Your bill is actually 40% less today than it was in 1980. <clears throat> so what is superabundance? One of the four categories that we, we identify as superabundance. Superabundance occurs when no matter how many more people come to dinner, your bill decreases. So the last thing we did <clears throat> was we developed a Simon Abundance Index. We quantify and then measure this degree of abundance where we're recognizing both population and prices. We set the index equal to 100 in 1980. Now the equation for that is just one plus a percentage change in population divided by one plus a percentage change in time prices times 100. So <clears throat> population increased by 70%. Prices fell by 65%, so our uh, denominator there is 0 0.35. We multiply that times 100, we get a value of 479. We can also think about it this way. What's the change in the multiplier times the percentage change, one plus the percentage change in population times 100? Our multiplier, remember, 2.83 uh, today relative to 1980. We have 70% uh, more people times 100 would also give us that 479.6. So here's the index from 1980. Um, yes, there were periods where uh, abundance declined, but look at that overall trend, continues to move, continues to move. So, in summary, 1980, our index was 100, 2017, it had increased to 479, indicating a 379% increase. That suggests that uh, this is growing at about 4.33% a year and abundance will double every 16 years. So our project, once again, we define, we, we uh, create a new definition for abundance. We expand it to 50 commodities going back to 1980. We convert uh, this data to time prices. We have developed a new equation, the price elasticity of population, and we also offer a new, a new index, the Simon Abundance Index. <clears throat> I actually think that uh, <clears throat> Professor Simon was awarded the Nobel Prize this year. Um, Paul Romer stood in as proxy. An economy grows whenever people take resources and rearrange them in a way that makes them more valuable. Rearranging is freedom. Value is where markets allow you to discover if you've created something of value. Another way to think about is uh, how many keys are on a piano? I think there's 88. How many songs are in a piano? Well, <clears throat> biologists and politicians like Ehrlich and Thanos would say you should just count the keys. Economists like Julian would say, no, you should listen to the almost infinite variety of imagination that produces music from this device. I uh, 
would just conclude by saying if Julian were here today, he would tell us to listen to the music. He would say that every human being that's here has gifts and superpowers. And if we have the freedom to create and the liberty to trade with one another, that we can create this astonishing abundance. And we can defeat the darkness of Thanos and his minions. Please join Julian in this new Guardians of the Galaxy. Thank you. That was one hell of a talk. Um, tough act to follow. Um, but I am, uh, your students are, uh, are truly blessed to have you. Thank you very much for uh, summing up our research so crisply. Thank you. Okay, um, so what I'm going to do very, very briefly, because we really want to uh, go over to, um, to George, I want to launch uh, the uh, Simon Project uh, website. Uh, Simon Project website will be a part of uh, humanprogress.org. In the header, you will see the Simon Project. Upon clicking on it, um, you will see a, uh, a little welcome from Julian and a little description of uh, the great wager that uh, Julian uh, took up with Ehrlich. Uh, Below that, and of course that is linked to uh, the study itself, which, uh, which Gail and I have written last year. Below that, uh, you will be able to see uh, the four components of our research, time, price of resources, price elasticity of population, Simon Abundance Framework, and the Simon Abundance Index. And upon clicking on each of these, you will then uh, encounter the, the, the relevant part of the work, this uh, is uh, basically the evolution, uh, the percentage evolution in uh, time prices of the 50 commodities that Gail and I uh, worked with. And uh, um, if you hover over any of these, uh, you will get a sense of how time prices have evolved over time over those 37 years. So we start at uh, 100, and you can see that uh, by 1982, which is to say two years later, the price goes up to 172, uh, uh, 78. Uh, but by the time that you get to 2017, the price is well below 100, and it's somewhere in the neighborhood of, uh, of 18. The highest price uh, increase uh, that you can observe here is that of natural gas, uh, which rose to 186% um, over, over 1980 in 2005. And that's when we have the, um, uh, the uh, fracking revolution kicking in. And as you can see, it continues on a downward spiral. Now, let me just zoom out of this and just show you the, the overall trend, as I'm sure you can see, is a downward trend. And you can play around with this and see the time prices of different resources uh, as you click through uh, the chart. 
Um, below the chart, we have the summary of the findings that Gail, and, um, that Gail uh, presented a short while ago, uh, and an introductory um, video to the time price uh, of resources, which will basically explain um, um, in a way that students, for example, can understand what time prices are all about. And the same goes for the price elasticity of population. Once again, it's an explanation of the concept followed by the explanatory video at the bottom and the Simon Abundance uh, Framework and Simon Abundance Index as well. Always accompanied with an explanatory video. Now, on the, um, my right-hand side, uh, you will see publications whenever we publish anything that pertains to the abundance of resources and uh, the Simon project. Uh, this will automatically populate so that at the, at the top, uh, you will get uh, the latest writings uh, from our team on uh, um, the relationship between population growth and uh, declining prices of resources. And, of course, uh, you'll also be able to watch uh, videos as they are, uh, as they are created. 7.7 .7 billion people and counting. More people means more consumers, so resources are getting scarcer and costlier by the day. Dead wrong. Yes, in every single moment you can find a commodity that's surging in price. But that surge is also a signal, an incentive to people to go out and find more of it or use less of it, recycle more or find a substitute. So in the long run, prices tend to fall. And this has now been thoroughly documented by Gail Pooley and Marianne Tupi with their Simon Abundance Index. They Johan cannot convince you, nobody can. Uh, <laughs> and please do sign up uh, for the news uh, in our sign-up box and explore uh, the uh, Simon project at your leisure. Uh, with that, uh, let me uh, welcome George, our last speaker, George Gilder, who is one of the leading economic and technological thinkers of the past 40 years. He's the author of 19 books, including Wealth and Poverty, Life After Television, Knowledge and Power, um, scandal of Money, and Life After Google. He is the founding fellow of the Discovery Institute, where he began his study of information theory and is also an influential, influential venture investor. Please help me welcome George Gilder. Thank you. I think this is a wonderful event. and. Uh, I'm really excited to be part of it. Uh, Julian Simon had a tremendous impact on me as I was working in the carols of supply-side economics and facing uh, the overwhelming academic belief that human beings were inexorably burdens on the planet. And uh, this has led me to the conclusion that Julian Simon was the most important economist of the 20th century, and his shadow is being carried forward by uh, Gail and Marion to uh, render him the most important economist of the 21st century. There many economists have had tremendous influence but nearly all of them have been wrong. 
and so uh, it's not so hard to be the most important economist as you might imagine. And one of the tests of a failed paradigm is its endless furbelows of, of uh, complexity. It becomes more and more difficult to understand as it's de developed further. And uh, in the end, it becomes a tangle of enigmas and uh, really inapplicable. And I think uh, the dominant policies of Keynesianism, macroeconomics, macromancy, as it's been called, are, uh, are suffering from the death throes of a failed paradigm. And Julian Simons, gigantic, simple, but powerful and ever um, more persuasive vision um, is uh, looming ever more significantly in our lives. And uh, this, this has been something of a triumphalist uh, set of speeches so far. We, we hear about uh, the you know, the dramatic victory and the great wager with Ehrlich. And, and this is an exciting uh, affirmation, and we all should be encouraged by it. But in, in my, be my belief is this battle has not even remotely been run, won, that uh, the biggest threat to the U.S. economy today is it's all sicklied o'er by a pale cast of green goo based on the Ehrlich vision that human beings are intrinsically burdens on the planet rather than the redemption of the planet. And this is really the central issue in all our politics. The socialists have become, have changed from reds to greens. And, uh, and they and they uh, they are still battling uh, the Simon vision uh, from a different angle. This is climate change. Blaming conservatives for the weather is the chief uh, theme of the left at, in these times. So, uh, so this I think this was an it, that it, we are discussing the central figure of 20th and 21st century economics. And, and uh, Ehrlich really has the great wager. There was one great wager that Julian initiated, but uh, the second great wager was Ehrlich really persuaded the Chinese to launch their one-child policy. And here was another great wager with a catastrophic victory by the Simon vision. And I think uh, that is probably uh, more important than that $5,000. So I've been working since then on uh, information theory of economics that really springs from uh, Julian's vision that, uh, that the ultimate resource is human beings, human creativity is the ultimate resource. And, and the key 
insight is that as uh, Hirschman, uh, Albert Hirschman of Princeton uh, put it in an essay on development economics, that when he surveyed all the various uh, plans that had been launched around the world for economic growth, he showed that, or to stimulate development, he showed that uh, it was a sort of apparently random outcome which uh, development projects succeeded, which plans uh, triumphed, and which ones failed. And, and uh, that, that what differentiated them was solely the differences in the surprising creativity of human beings. That's what differentiated. Creativity always comes as a surprise to us. If it didn't, we wouldn't need it, and socialism would work. Uh, and uh, the information theory of economics takes this insight and converges it with Shannon's insight that information itself is best defined as unexpected bits or surprising outcomes. So, uh, so this allows you to converge the economics of human creativity with the information theory that has underlied all uh, advances in computer science and technology and communications that have uh, fueled the world economy for the last uh, 50 years. And uh, so, um, and uh, there are three central propositions that uh, come from this uh, information theory of economics that allows you to incorporate entrepreneurial surprise in economic models as the flow of information, which itself is identified as, as surprise. And the first proposition is that wealth is essentially knowledge. That's, as Simon put it, the stock of knowledge. Wealth is knowledge. And we know that because, uh, uh, the, as Thomas Sowell put it, the Neanderthal in his cave had all the physical resources we have today. The difference between our age and the Stone Age is the increase of knowledge. But that affords a further insight. What is economic growth? Economic growth is learning. And I, I really uh, came to this conclusion of when I was uh, studying learning curves. Uh, all, all, uh, it's the most uh, fully developed and documented proposition in uh, business is the learning curve, the Bain and it started at Boston Consulting Group and moved to Bain and Company as the experience curve. But they all are learning curves that show with every doubling of total output sold, 
uh, prices drop between 20 and 30 percent. And uh, a lot of those, uh, what, the, what we saw there in all those charts are a mass of learning curves. Uh, but if they were really plotted as learning curves, uh, they would uh, fit this model pretty well. And Moore's law is the most famous learning curve. And uh, in an article in Wired of 20 years ago or so, I really uh, went through the, and in telecosm and microcosm, I think, but better in the Wired article, I went through how uh, Moore's law is really a learning curve. And, it's, and the reason it seems to be such a more powerful and a rapid phenomenon is because the doubling of units, essentially transistors, occurred so much faster than other learning curves. But essentially, it fits the model. And from uh, poultry broilers to insurance policies to uh, transistors to lines of software code to trucking miles. It doesn't matter. You see learning curves all across the economy. And that's not an accident. That is because growth is learning. And it's a, it's a particular kind of learning, Popperian learning. In order to have a learning process, you got to ex expound your uh, business proposition in terms that can be refuted, that are falsifiable. And capitalism works and produces knowledge and learning because it is a perfect mechanism modeled almost as if it were modeled on the scientific pro process of enabling creative human beings to uh, pursue business plans that are falsifiable, that can go bankrupt. And uh, whenever government, through the central bank or, or through Keynesian uh, stimuli or any other such policy, try to guarantee growth, to use power rather than knowledge in order to create growth, they actually prohibit it. Uh, a government guarantee stifles learning and thus prevents economic growth. And uh, the, as the spread of efforts to guarantee growth to, uh, in a counter-Simonian siege of planning and regulation and guarantees spreads through the world, economic growth slows. And that's uh, our current, current predicament. So learning is growth. And time, and uh, a beautiful exposition of time in the economy by Gail and Marion here, uh, and uh, time, but money is the way we translate the ultimate scarcity. What remains scarce when everything else grows abundant in the, under capitalism? And that is time. 
And uh, that's why these time prices are not, are, are, are not some device, a tricky device that uh, Gail and Marion contrived in order to show um, some cockeyed optimist, Simonian uh, vision. It's, it's rather the most fundamental fact in economics is money as the way we translate the inexorable scarcity of time into the economy. And if you try to force money into being artificially abundant, you falsify all these price signals that are essential to guide the decisions of, of entrepreneurs into an ever more abundant future. Thank you. about uh, 25 minutes or so for Q&A. Um, I will ask you to please wait until the mic gets to you after I call on you. Um, and then if you would please stand up and uh, just tell us who you are and uh, uh, who you work for. And please uh, finally uh, make your question in a form of a question. So the first gentleman in, in the blue, yes, Don Boudreau over there. Hi, I'm Don Goudreau. I teach at George Mason University. Um, on the population elasticity, are there plans uh, to disaggregate that to the country level? If you, if you do it at a country level and look at the time prices at a country level, you can get some measure of the effectiveness of economic freedom. Because I assume the figure you used was world population, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so if you disaggregate it to the country level, I'm, I, I feel pretty confident you'll find that that in freer countries, that, popula that population elasticity is a lot higher than in, uh, in less free countries. I just want to know if there, there are plans to do that. Yeah, absolutely. We, we put the new equation on the table, and we're hopeful that uh, people will begin to use that equation and apply it to different data sets. I think the issue there is uh, we can try to measure uh, a freedom index in a country that, uh, and then look at the population and their economic growth and see if there's this relationship, it almost uh, confirms the index uh, in a way uh, for their support to substantiate that there is this correlation between freedom and, and growth and this tie to population. Where does the growth come from? It comes from, from human beings that uh, have this freedom to create. And uh, I will just add to that that... Um, um, one of the things that we want to do over the summer is to do these national level analyses, um, which are relatively easy to do for the United States because we do have uh, wage income data for American unskilled laborers who are mostly of interest to people who care about the, the people at the very bottom of the income ladder, and then also for skilled laborers. Now, we are currently looking for data on, on incomes for uh, from long-run long incomes in places like China and India, because that will also allow us to see um, uh, the evolution of prices in, in, in the context of those countries. So if anybody has um, knowledge uh, of that data, please let us know. Uh, yes, in the back, on the right-hand side. Hi, uh, John Mueller from Cato and from Ohio State. 
Uh, would you push the Simon issue back further? Uh, the real advance in prosperity and also in medical advances it didn't start in 1980, but more or less in 1780. In other words, there's a huge period of time in which there was very little, apparently, uh, economic progress or progress in terms of uh, human welfare, in terms of uh, medicine and so forth. And then suddenly there was this increase, particularly in the developed world, through the 19th century, of course, in the 20th and so on. Um, does this mean that people just didn't think until 1800 and, uh, for millennia? Uh, how would Simon interpret that, in other words? Why, why did that, why, why that fairly abrupt change about 1800 or so, particularly in the developed world? That's an interesting question. Madison, if you remember him, uh, wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal and, uh, in 1999, and it was about the millennium, and he said the world uh, poor until 1820, and he shows this being. And uh, you know, he offered some explanations for it. Uh, Deidre McCloskey's got some explanations for it. Uh, you know, I think Julian would probably say, look, uh, if, you, if you give people a little bit of freedom, uh, a little bit of dignity and an opportunity to go to a market to test that uh, idea to see if they're creating value, um, you, can, you can begin to see this abundance occur. Um, so what, uh, what pieces do we need? Uh, we don't, uh, what, what we have on the planet is a poverty of freedom. I would and, add, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I would add to that, um, one of the books, I believe, that came out shortly after my father's death that he wrote before he died, um, I think it came out around 2000, is a book called The Great Breakthrough, which addresses exactly this issue. And what was the solution? Um, it's been a while since I've read it, I must admit, but I believe <laughs> oh, it's brother. the, I, my father. Oh, your father. But I believe it's a, a confluence of the things that Gail was just, was just mentioning, um, population growth, um, better political and economic systems at the same time, um, some, uh, some of those things gathering speed and then taking off. Uh, but uh, it's been a while since I've read it, but I believe those are the main elements. As we explain in our paper uh, in the introduction, uh, population growth preceded economic growth by a few decades in, in Western Europe. So people stopped dying as flies um, because of uh, huge advances in uh, in uh, science and medicine. Uh, the uh, slow retraction of uh, medieval beliefs in what causes sickness, for example, such as the humor uh, theory of sickness and replacing that with um, the germ theory of disease. Um, also, um, um, inoculation and vaccinations came into, into the place when, uh, when Europe was uh, fundamentally very, very poor. Uh, but, but you do have this uh, flourishing of human population that begins, uh, an expansion of human population that begins in the late 18th century. Um, and uh, it's a sort of a virtuous cycle that uh, more people are able to um, um, specialize and trade together. At the same time, you have the uh, development of the steam engine and uh, the massive growth in international trade. Um, and of the telegraph, so you have massive increase in, in the spread of information. Um, so all I'm saying is that when you think about the history of our species, we are about 300,000 years old. Um, mo modernity, 
the world that you can recognize today is the story of the last 250 years or so, which is to say 0.01% of the time that our species was on Earth. And um, there are different theories why that happened. I mean, you have Doug North and his institutional theories. You have Deidre McCloskey. Um, you have Steven Pinker. But their theories are not mutually exclusive. Bottom line is that um, it was the growth of economic and political freedom most broadly understood. The ability of scientists to pursue um, uh, scientific discoveries and knowledge which was previously banned. I mean, how would you know about how to save a human being if for religi religious reasons you couldn't dissect their bodies for the first, you know, for the, for the last thousand years? Uh, all of that changes uh, with the Enlightenment um, in the late 18th century. And um, that's where you have that breakthrough uh, with, uh, with, with the past. I think that's, uh, um, I just would like to add my favorite theory, which is Isaac Newton. Uh, Isaac Newton invented physics, but uh, he also essentially created and enforced the gold standard, which uh, fueled the whole British Empire and, and uh, this efflorescence of international trade that you identify as really a driving force of uh, abundance. Yes, sorry, you're right here in front. Herb Rose, uh, what effect, if any, do you think climate change has on this theory? On what? On what? On the abundance um, uh, consideration. Do you think that, uh, has this been taken into account? Zero. You know, I, I would, zero. Uh, here's the deal is I think that we see uh, human beings facing all kinds of conditions and they, uh, they tend to innovate around those. They tend to innovate around problems mm -hmm. and that innovation process seems to be powerful enough to deal with any expectation that we might have with respect to these, uh, these challenges going forward. And I would, I would just say, uh, you know, we've got to give ourselves a little more credit and trust ourselves to be able to do that. I would say the data actually show something a little different. Since NASA's data goes back to 1880, um, and while we know that climate has changed much more dramatically before, for that, but since 1880, uh, according to NASA's most recent data set, the temperature has gone up overall one degree centigrade. A lot of ups, a lot of downs. Up about uh, a little over 70 some years, down roughly in the upper 50s, and no change a few, few years. Um, but so we don't know whether or not the climate will, will keep going in the direction it's going. In fact, the last two years, the temperature has gone down. But beyond that, let's assume for a second the temperature keeps going up. Um, the Heartland Institute has put together, uh, has published uh, uh, a recent uh, booklet which compiles some data or brings forth some data that shows that roughly, depending on which country you're looking at, something like 10 times as many people die, that order of magnitude, of, of cold rather than of heat. So to the extent the climate is, to the extent our, our Earth is getting warmer, more people will live. More people will live longer, less people will die. That means that there will be more human beings alive, more knowledge, more creativity, 
more inventiveness, more solutions. Um, so I have every reason to believe that to the extent the Earth does warm, it will actually be better. So I regret, in fact, that I, that I regret that I doubt that the Earth is warming very much. It is warming a little bit so far recently. I wish it were warming more, is what I'm trying to say. The other thing I'd say about that is that um, a warming Earth uh, tends to uh, make the growing seasons longer in large portions of the planet, North America, most of it, uh, certainly as you get into the northern half of North America, um, uh, the great heartland of the Midwest, Canada, a lot of China, Russia, Europe, all those places will have, will have much longer growing seasons and able to produce even more food, uh, be more hospitable. Uh, if you live in Chicago, certainly more hospitable to, to, uh, to life. Uh, we in Chicago like to say, we don't call it climate change, we call it climate improvement. I, um, one thing that does worry me is that um, the environmentalist movement, which in my opinion started as a very noble attempt to create a better symbiosis between human beings and the earth, the natural environment, is uh, quickly turning into a, an anti-humanist project, which is growing darker by the day. The, the calls for women to eschew pregnancy and motherhood um, because every additional baby will be bad for the environment is, in my view, uh, and a deeply anti-humanist and irrational um, approach to climate change and solution of climate change. Gail pointed to innovation as a potential way around global warming. If global warming is indeed caused by increases in CO2 levels, we do know how to produce a lot of energy without producing any CO2 at all. It is called nuclear energy. The Green Movement completely opposes it. We also do have a source of energy which produces half as much CO2 as burning of coal does in production of electricity. It's called natural gas. The Green Movement opposes that too. We also know how to... Um, grow more food um, with less use of pesticide and greater productivity. And that is through GMO, um, GMO um, um, planning. Sorry, GMO uh, uh, production. Uh, technology. Technology. technology, through GMO technology. That's, that should that enable us. Organs. That's right. So that should enable us to produce more food on less acreage therefore securing more of nature for animals. And by using fewer pesticides, we do not have to worry about the runoff of the pesticides into rivers and ultimately oceans. What is the approach or what is the response of the green movement to the GMO revolution? Complete opposition to it. So there are so innovation is happening every day. Human beings are every day trying to, um, trying to come to resolution of the problems that remain, but they are facing opposition precisely from the people they are trying to placate. Um, and so if there is nothing else that people take away from this particular forum and this particular lecture, it is that human beings are fundamentally problem solvers. It doesn't really matter what the problem is. There are people thinking of ways of solving those problems if we give them a chance to do it and if we listen to their advice. Yes, gentlemen over there. 
Thank you, Jonathan Chanis. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Julian Simon's work, and I think the index is important because perhaps you're proving that he was right. But I wonder if you're not claiming too much for it because commodities have become less and less important in life. If you look at the costs of a pair of pants or a box of cereal, commodities now are in the single digit in terms of what the cost is. So you can have a decline in commodity prices and it really will not necessarily have any real impact on what things cost for people. So the composition of the basket has changed and you know, are you overreaching with the index? I mean, even if your larger point is correct. And the second thing is I wonder about your base year of 1980. And in the spirit of falsification, would your numbers, be, I would think your numbers would be a lot different if your base year was 1965 and 1998. You know, 1980 was 10 years after a huge commodity blow off. So you, you pick the top year to use your base. So that kind of is a little troubling. So, you know, what would it look like if you run it with a different base year? And then finally, it was touched upon a little bit before, um, but what would the real time cost look if you use the median instead of the mean? Because the mean is much higher than the median. Oh. And people's median, mean earnings, you know, okay. the mean wages. I see what you mean, okay. Yeah, the first issue on the uh, percentage of uh, you know, where commodities fall, I think our issue there is if you look at that uh, for the poor, uh, it's a much higher percentage for them. So when we think about inequality and what do we do to lift the poor, uh, you know, if commodities are going down, the price of wheat, the price of oil, that's going to that's gonna affect them uh, disproportionately much higher than it would with the rest of us. We also looked at these different base years. Our, our issue with 1980 was uh, World Bank seemed to have the most data that started at 1980. So they have some stuff that's previous to that that we've also looked at and we hope to, in the future, be able to include that in our analysis. Um, their data sets kind of move a little bit over time. Uh, we also use that year uh, kind of to honor Julian. That was the date that he picked, uh, was 1980 for the bet. But yeah, of course, we can take these tools and look at different data sets and see what kind of coefficients and, and data that gets produced. And then the last question about median. Median income tends to be about 60% uh, of mean income. So we can use that as a rough estimate. I think our issue is what's the percentage change over time? Not the absolute values, but what is that curve looking like? Is it the same rate of change? Yeah. Is it, I mean, in terms of the, the rate of change in income, the denominator in the, in the time price equation. I would only add to that, um, while 1980 may have been a, a uh, somewhat high year to start with, um, if you look at my father's books, such as The Ultimate Resource Two, um, The State of Humanity, his data goes back as far as there is data, and the story, even it, using, using um, uh, monetary prices, um, remains the same. There are little blips over time that go up and down, but largely the story remains the same. Um, as population grows, um, prices fall um, uh, for virtually every commodity that is, a, that is, that is something we use. Um, the story remains absolutely the same. And some of, these, some of, this, some of this data goes back um, well into the 1800s. Um, as much data, his, his approach was as much data as there is, he was going to use, and the story remains absolutely the same. Since publishing of the paper, uh, we have come across other data sets that we are planning to use in future research, uh, which we will commence this summer, including uh, 
data set of, I believe, 45 commodities from Professor Jacks. Um, can't remember which university he is in at. Um, but that goes back to 1850. Um, so we have, um, we should have a very good sense of where things are heading, adjusted for time price. Um, again, more research on this uh, is going to be coming. And let me just reiterate, the base year was 1980 because that's when the famous wager um, started. So we just thought. And, and I would add to that, by the way, um, I would slightly alter the phrasing that Gail used about the timing of the bet. My father did not choose 1980 to make the bet. He finally got an article published in Science Magazine, which that time uh, was probably the most influential magazine read by scientists, may still be, um, after many attempts to, to uh, get past their, their, some, some formidable obstacles. But when he got it published, he offered the bet then. He offered it, and that's when it was accepted. He didn't choose that year. The, uh, those who wanted to bet with him chose that year. Which was a year of an absolute pitch of projections of soaring commodity prices of future bio crunch for the planet. You know, that was the environment. He was, against, he was running against the tide of opinion about the direction of prices. That's why it seemed to be such an outlandish and crazy bet to make um, uh, for people who were on Ehrlich's side. They, they, many thought, why would, he, why would Simon ever make such a bet? It's a fool's bet. Well. It was a fool's bet, but not the way Ehrlich thought. Uh, finally, we have just finished an analysis of food prices in America between 1990 and 2019, which we published on Human Progress. And uh, we looked at 48 different food items as they were documented and collected by the federal government in 1919. Then we compared it to food prices for the same items in 2019 at Walmart. And all of them fell in price uh, sometimes by... Uh, by a substantial uh, margin. And the multiplier is just uh, incredibly high. So uh, there are these data sets. We are going to go through them, but it, it, it takes time. Yes, sir. Uh, Daniel Berninger, I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, there's a lot of excitement these days about China bypassing the US uh, in technology in particular, I think it would be embarrassing if we compared our abundance index in the US to China. Um, in 1980, China had, uh, well, US had 50 times the per capita income of China. Today we have five. Um, and who knows what the future holds, but you know, it seems like a sort of proxy for quality of policy in the U.S. was a relatively free country and maybe is less free today, I don't know. Um, China was an unfree country and became free, um, but it does seem the abundance index would provide sort of a nice um, proxy for the quality of policy. And so I think today there's a lot of excitement about, you know, trade wars and prohibiting companies like Huawei. But really, if you look at the big picture, you know, the United States is in the position it's in for self-injury. It's not, doesn't have anything to do with what China was doing. Anybody disagrees? No. <laughs> George is our China expert. His book, by the way, is number one or two in China. His new no, book. Not, not, was. For, Last was week. two yeah. for a while. I, I don't know. It's hard, hard to believe it, but I've spent months in China in the last... 
for four months or so. And it is exciting having a bestseller in China. I would only add, I guess, two points. One That's is- That's life after Google. I would only add two points to that. Um, while I agree with your basic point, number one is, um, China's economic per capita income in China has clearly gone up dramatically since since 1980, since 1978, when Deng Xiaoping took over. But um, there's a lot to question about the Chinese stat, uh, statistics as well, um, and uh, their growth rates uh, are probably significantly lower, particularly in recent years, than they than uh, than their claim to be. That's number one. Number two is um, poor countries once they get relatively decent policy almost always grow much more rapidly until they reach um, uh, a somewhat higher level, a somewhat more closer to middle income level that rich countries do. Um, it's, that's, that's inevitable, um, uh, largely because the opportunities are greater when you have a poor society um, to make great gains through um, technology and other things that you can acquire from other countries and things like that. Um, having said that, though, I, I agree with your general point. Okay, young man in the middle. Uh, I'm Andrew Sage, and I'm just a high school student. Um, and I was wondering if the uh, PEP of 9.3 is constant. Uh, I can't hear you. Can you? Yeah. So I was wondering if the PEP uh, 9.3 number you gave us is a, a constant uh, looking in the future, or if it's going to, or how it's going to change over time. You know, our the 20, uh, 1980 to 2017 data indicated the, the negative 0 0.93. We actually have done a preliminary uh, data from 1980 to 2018, and it's, it's closer to one. So I think in the short term, you'll, you'll see that PEP moving up and down. But over the longer period, you'll see it tend to kind of move toward this uh, minus one, which the interpretation is... You want to add one more percent to the population, you can expect uh, time prices to decline one percent. So if we're, we're hopeful that that continues going forward, if it does, it means we add another uh, three billion people to the planet, and what's going to happen to abundance? Um, well, will prices fall by another 60, 70 percent? Though it bears thinking about that um, uh, population uh, projections, whilst they, di they diverge, um, do expect a population peak um, at around, depending on who you listen to, between around uh, 2080 or uh, 2100. And um, um, some of the population specialists claim that we are going to peak at about 10 billion people, others say closer to 12 billion people, but nobody expects a uh, population to grow um, indefinitely, um, because economic growth, more, uh, more opportunities for women in the workplace and more education for women in the workplace and the gr growing opportunity cost of staying at home um, mean that uh, women in places where birth rates are still above the global average, uh, such as Sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere, will probably trend downward um, as it happened in uh, Asia. And so nobody expects that population growth will continue at the current rate and indefinitely, which then 
raises an obvious question. Where will the innovation come from? Um, will it come from AI, for example? I don't know, George, what do you think? Um, I think AI is a very interesting phenomenon, but it, and it's a valuable technology, but it poses zero threat to jobs. It, it actually creates jobs. Uh, when, uh, you know, it, it, innovation, both um, people are not hired because they're unproductive. And so uh, as uh, technology is deployed, including AI, uh, it renders people more productive and thus more employable, while at the same time generating the capital to endow new work. So uh, uh, AI is uh, zero threat to employment. It is it, it actually stopping AI, however, does pose a threat to employment as all Luddite uh, movements always do threaten uh, this process of innovation that creates new work. And I've, I've been uh, working on uh, two connectomes to get a perspective on AI. Uh, one connectome is the internet, essentially. All the, mem all the memories and s data storage and processing connected to the internet. In order to map those connections, uh, it takes a little more than a zettabyte. In other words, the zettabyte is 10 to the 21st. It's a vast number, and I've contemplated over the years when we'd enter the zettabyte era, and now we're in the zettabyte era. At the same time, and, and that, that uh, um, zettabyte of, of internet connectivity entails gigawatts moving toward terawatts of energy to sustain it. Meanwhile, there's a great movement in neurobiology to map the human brain's connectome, all the connections in the human, one human brain, and uh, uh, to map all the connections in one human brain now appears to entail a zettabyte. And uh, these connections in one human brain, the human zettabyte, is, uh, uh, runs on between 12 and 14 watts of energy compared to the gigawatts of the internet. And so uh, each human brain is a billion times more cost effective than the uh, than uh, the internet computational collective mind that uh, 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 people like Kevin Kelly project as, as solving all the problems of the world in one super mind uh, uh, on the internet. And this is why I believe that, uh, you, you know, the more, more that the ultimate resource is that zettabyte of the human brain, not the zettabyte of artificial intelligence. I'm glad you ended there because, as Julian Simon always used to say, with every uh, hungry mouth comes a, a brain capable of 
innovation. And I think that's a uh, wonderful way to end today's forum. That's all the time we have uh, uh, for questions. Um, before thanking our panelists, I would like to invite you to join us uh, for lunch upstairs on the second floor. Um, and uh, please join us again. Thank you very much um, and have a good day. Thank you. Thank you.